Chapter Twenty Eight of Fidelity by Susan Glaspell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The summer had gone by, and Ted Holland, who had gone west with Ruth in May, was back in Freeport, breaking up the house. The place was offered for sale. Things had to be cleared out in one way or another. What none of the children wanted was being sold to anybody who did happen to want it. What nobody wanted was to be given away to such people as had to take what they could get. And there was a great deal of it not even in the class for giving away. Just truck, Ted kept callously calling it to Harriet and their cousin Flora. He whistled vigorously over some of the truck. A worn dog's collar, an old pair of the queer kind of house shoes his mother wore, a spectacle case he had used to love to hear his father snap shut, dusty, leaky sofa pillows that had bristled with newness in the den which was the delight of his sixteen-year-old heart. He kept saying to Cousin Flora that there was no end to the junk. Old school readers, Ruth's party slippers. Just burn it all up, he said, in a crisp voice of efficiency. What was it good for, anyhow? Certainly it had taught him a lesson. He'd never keep anything. They had been at it for a week, sorting, destroying, dispersing, scattering what a family's life through a generation had assembled, breaking up the Hollands. Ted, in his own room that morning, around him the things he was going to put in his trunk for taking back west, admitted to himself that it was gruesome business. Things were over. Things at home were all over. This pulling to pieces drove that home hard. Father and mother were gone, and now their stuff was being got out of the way. After this there would not even be a place where the things they had used were. But he would be glad when they could get through with it. He was finding that there was something wrenching about things that were left, things that had been used and that now there was no longer any use for. The sight of them stabbed as no mere thinking about things could do. It was hard work throwing away truck that something seemed to cling to. It was hard to really get it, he was thinking. A family lived in a place, seemed really a part of that place an important part, perhaps. Then things changed, people died, moved away, and that family simply wasn't any more. And things went on just about the same. Whistling, he put some shirts in his trunk, trying to fix his mind on how many new shirts he needed. He was going back west, to live, to work, not right where Ruth was, in southwestern Colorado, but in the country a little to the north. He and a fellow he had made friends with out there had bought an apple orchard, the money he was to have from his father would go into it, and some of Ruth's money. She wanted him to invest some of hers with his. It was that had made it possible for him to go in with this fellow. He was glad he could do it. The West had got him. He believed he could make things go. And he shouldn't have liked staying on in Freeport. Too many things were different for him to want to stay there, and too many things hurt. Ruth had come to mean too much to him to let him be happy with people who felt as the people there did about her. He heard Harriet downstairs, and went down to speak to her about the price the stove-man offered for the kitchen range. He remembered his mother's delight in that range as new. Somehow it made him hate selling it for this pittance. Harriet thought, however, that they had better let it go. One couldn't expect to get much for old things, and they didn't want it on their hands. They stayed there a while in the dining-room, considering the problem of getting out of the way various other things there was no longer any use for. Harriet was looking at the bay window. "'If the Woodburys take the house,' she said, "'they won't want these shades.' "'Oh, no,' replied Ted. "'They wouldn't be good enough for Mildred.' The Woodburys had been there the night before to look at the house. 
They thought of buying it, and Mildred, just recently home from Europe with Edith Blair, they had had a hard time getting home because of the war, had, according to his own way of putting it, made Ted tired. She was so fretful with her father and her ideas of how the place could perhaps be made presentable by being all done over, had seemed to Ted pretty airy. He'd rather strangers had the house. He heard that Mildred was going about a lot with Bob Gearing, one of the fellows in town who had money. Ted pulled out his watch. "'I want to get down and see Dean at his noon office hours,' he said. Harriet turned from the window. "'What have you got to see him about?' she asked sharply. "'Why, just see him,' he answered in surprise. "'Why shouldn't I want to see him? Haven't seen him since I got back. He'll want to hear about Ruth.' Harriet seemed about to speak, then looked at the door of the kitchen, where a man was packing dishes. "'I don't think I'd go to him for that,' she said in lowered voice. Ted looked at her in bewildered inquiry. "'Mrs. Franklin has left him,' she said shortly. She glanced at the kitchen door, then added in a voice that dropped still lower, "'And the talk is that it's because of Ruth.' For a minute Ted just stood staring at her. Then his face was aflame with angry blood. "'The talk!' he choked. "'So that's the new talk. Well—' "'Shh!' warned Harriet, and stepped over and closed the kitchen door. "'I'd like to tell some of them what I think of their talk,' he blazed. "'Oh, I'd like to tell some of these warts!' "'Ted!' she admonished, nodding her head toward the closed door. "'What do I care? I'd like to have them hear me. I want them to know that I—' He broke off and stood looking at her. "'It doesn't seem to worry you much,' he thrust at her. "'It did, Ted,' she said patiently. "'I—it did.' She looked so distressed, so worn as she said it, that it mollified him, until she added, "'And still, you mustn't be too hard on people. A woman who has put herself in that position—there you go, put herself in that position. Put herself,' he jeered angrily, "'in that position. As if the position was something Ruth got into on purpose, and after all these years still talking about her position. Let me tell you something. I'll tell you the woman that's put herself in the position I think would make her hate herself. That's Mrs. Williams.' She's the one that's put herself. Ted, she broke in sternly, you must not. But you make me sick, he flung back at her, and snatched hat and coat from the hall rack and left the house with a violent bang of the front door. He did not go down to Dean's office. He stalked ahead, trying to hold down the bitter rage that was almost choking him. At one time when he looked up, he saw that he was passing the house Dean Franklin had built before his marriage and noted that it was closed, all the shades were cleared down. Flower-beds that had been laid out in the spring had been let go. It looked all wrong to see a new place so deserted, so run down. He remembered seeing Dean working out in that yard in the spring. He hurried on by. His heart was hot with resentment, real hatred, of the town through which he walked. He loathed the place, he told himself, picking on Ruth for this— ready to seize on her for anything that put her in bad. He had been with Ruth for four months. He knew now just how things were with her. It gave him some idea of what it was she had gone through. It made him hate the town that had no feeling for her. He had walked out from town, not giving any thought to where he was going, just walking because he had to be doing something. He was about to cross a little bridge, and stepped to the side of the road to let the vehicle right behind him get ahead. He stood glaring down at the creek and did not look up until he heard the wagon, just as it struck the bridge, stop. 
Then he saw that it was a woman driving the market wagon, and recognized her as Mrs. Herman, who had been so good to Ruth. He stepped up eagerly to greet her. His face quickly cleared as he held out his hand, and he smiled at her with a sudden boyish warmth that made her face—it was thin, tired—also light with pleasure. He kept shaking her hand. It seemed wonderfully good of her to have come along just then. She was something friendly in a hostile world. He went out eagerly, gratefully, to the something friendly. He had had about all he could stand of the other things, other feelings. He had told Ruth that he would be sure to go and see Mrs. Herman. He got in with her now, and they talked of Ruth as they jogged through the country, which he now noticed was aflame with the red and gold of October. He found himself chatting along about Ruth, just as if there was not this other thing about her, the thing that made it impossible to speak of her to almost anyone else in the town. It helped a lot to talk of Ruth that way just then. He had seemed all clogged up with hatred and resentment, fury at the town made him want to do something to somebody, and pity for Ruth made him feel sick in his sense of helplessness. Now those ugly things, those choking, blinding things, fell away in his talking about Ruth to this woman who wanted to hear about her because she cared for her, who wanted to hear the simple little things about her that those other people had no interest in. He found himself chatting along about Ruth and Stuart, their house, their land, the field of peas into which they turned their sheep, the potatoes grown on their place that summer. He talked of artesian wells and irrigation, of riding western horses and of camping in the mountains. Thinking of it afterwards, he didn't know when he had talked so much. And of course, as everyone was doing those days, they talked about the war. She was fairly aflame with feeling about it. He rode all the way home with Mrs. Herman, stayed for lunch, and then lingered about the place for an hour or more after that. He felt more like himself than he had at any time since coming home. He could forget a little about that desolate house that was no longer to be his home, and the simple friendly interest of this woman who was Ruth's friend helped to heal a very sore place in his heart. But afterwards, back there at home where it was as if he was stripping dead years, what came over him was the feeling that things were not as they had seemed out there with Mrs. Herman. She was like that, but in being that way she was different from the whole world, at least from practically the whole of the world that he knew. Working with old things cast him back to it all. He brooded over it there in the desolate place of things left behind. The resentful feeling toward the town, together with that miserable, helpless feeling of passionate pity for Ruth, settled down upon him, and he could not throw it off. He saw Dean that night. He saw him at the club where he went to play a game of pool because he had to get away from the house for a while. Dean was sitting apart from the various groups, reading a magazine. Ted stood in the door of that room looking at him a minute before Dean looked up from the page. He saw that his face was thinner. It made him look older. Indeed, he looked a good deal older than when, just the spring before, Ted used to see him working around that place that was all shut up now. And in that moment of scrutiny he saw something more than just looking older. If you didn't know Dean, you'd think—well, you'd think you didn't want to know him. And he looked as if he didn't care about your knowing him either. He looked as if he'd thank people to let him alone. Then he glanced up and saw Ted, and it seemed there were a few people he didn't want to have let him alone. But though he brightened on seeing him, looked like himself as he came quickly up to shake hands, he was not like himself in the talk that followed. It was if he wanted to be, tried to be, but he was constrained in asking about the West, the folks. He seemed to want to hear, yet he wasn't like himself, though Ted could scarcely have defined the difference. 
he was short in what he said, cutting things off sharply, and in little pauses his face would quickly settle to that moroseness. Ted told of his own plans, and Dean was enthusiastic about that. Then he fell silent a moment, and after that said with intensity, "'I wish I was going to pull out from here.' "'Well, why don't you?' laughed Ted, a little diffidently. "'Haven't got the gumption, I guess,' said Dean more lightly, and as he smiled gave Ted the impression of trying to pull himself out from something. Later in the evening a couple of men were talking of someone who was ill. "'They have Franklin, don't they?' was asked, and the answer came, "'Not any more. They've switched.' Walking home, he thought it had been said as if there was more to it, as if there had been previous talk about other people who had switched. Why, surely it couldn't be that because, for some reason or other, his wife had left him, people were taking it out on his practice. That seemed not only too unfair but too preposterous. Dean was the best doctor in town. What had his private affairs, no matter what the state of them, got to do with him as a physician? Surely even that town couldn't be as two-by-four as that. But it troubled him so persistently that next morning, when they were alone together in the attic, he brought himself to broach it to Harriet, asking, in the manner of one interested in a thing because of its very absurdity, just what the talk was about Ruth and the Franklins. Harriet went on to give the town's gossip of how Dean had gone to Indianapolis to see his wife, to try and make it right, but her people were strongly of the feeling that she had been badly treated, and it had ended with her going away somewhere with her mother. Harriet sighed heavily, as she said she feared it was one of those things that would not be made right. "'I call it the limit,' cried Ted. "'The woman must be a fool.' Harriet sadly shook her head. "'You don't understand women, Ted,' she said. "'And I don't want to, if that's what they're like,' he retorted hotly. "'I'm afraid Dean didn't manage very well,' sighed Harriet. "'Who wants to manage such a little fool?' snapped Ted. "'Now, Ted,' she began, but, "'You make me tired, Harriet,' he broke in passionately, and no more was said of it then. They worked in silence for a while, Ted raising a great deal of dust in the way he threw things about, Harriet looking through a box of old books and papers, sighing often. Harriet sighed a great deal, it seemed to Ted, and yet something about Harriet made him sorry for her. From across the attic he looked at her, awkwardly sitting on the floor, leaning against an old trunk. She looked tired, and he thought with compassion and remorse for the rough way he had spoken to her, of how her baby was only a little more than two months old, that it must be hard for her to be doing the things she was doing that week. Harriet had grown stout. She had that settled look of many women in middle life. She looked as if she couldn't change much, in any way. Well, Ted considered, he guessed Harriet couldn't change much. She was just fixed in the way she was, and that was all there was to it but she did not look happy in those things she had settled into. She looked patient. She seemed to think things couldn't be any different. She was turning the pages of an old album she had taken from the box of her mother's things she was sorting. "'Oh!' she exclaimed in a low voice, bending over the pages. Her tone brought Ted over to her. "'A picture of Ruth as a baby,' she murmured. He knelt down and looked over her shoulder into the dusty, old-fashioned album at a picture of a baby a year or so old, whose face was all screwed up into a delighted laugh, tiny hands raised up and clenched in the intensity of baby excitement, baby abandonment to the joyousness of existence. "'She was like that,' murmured Harriet a little tremulously. "'She was the crowingest baby.' 
They bend over it in silence for a minute. "'Seems pretty tickled about things, doesn't she?' said Ted, with a queer little laugh. Harriet sighed heavily. But a moment later a tear had fallen down to one of the baby hands clenched in joyousness. The tear made him forgive the sigh, and when he saw her carefully take the picture from the album and put it in the pocket of her big apron, it was a lot easier, somehow, to go on working with Harriet. It was even easy, after a little, to ask her what he wanted to know about Dean's practice. It was true, she feared, that the talk had hurt him some. Mrs. Lawrence had stopped having him. It seemed she had taken a great fancy to Amy Franklin and felt keenly for her in this. She had made other people feel that Dean had not been fair or kind, and so there was some feeling against him. "'I suppose she can't claim,' Ted cried hotly, "'that it hurts him as a doctor.' "'No,' Harriet began uncertainly, "'except that a doctor—of course, the personal side of things—' "'Now there you go, Harriet,' he interrupted furiously. "'You make me tired. If it wasn't that you've a sneaking feeling for Ruth, you'd fall for such a thing yourself.' "'There's no use trying to talk to you, Ted,' said Harriet patiently. Two days later the house was dismantled. Ted was leaving the next day for the West. He was so sick of the whole thing that it had gone a little easier toward the last, blunted to everything but getting things done. When Harriet, her eyes reddened, came downstairs with a doll and wanted to know if he didn't think Ruth might like to have it, saying that it was the doll Ruth had loved all through her little girl days, and that she had just come upon it where her mother had carefully packed it away, he snatched the doll from her and crammed it into the kitchen stove and poked at it savagely to make it burn faster. Then he slammed down the lid and looked ruthlessly up at Harriet with, "'We've had about enough of this sobbing around over junk.' Harriet wanted him to come over to her house that last night, but he said he'd either go home with one of the fellows or bring one of them home with him. She did not press it, knowing how little her brother and her husband liked each other. He went to the theatre that night with a couple of his friends— he was glad to go, for it was as good a way as he could think of for getting through the evening. They were a little early, and he sat there watching the people coming in. It was what would be called a representative audience, the society of the town, the best people were there. They were people Ted had known all his life, people who used to come to the house, people his own family had been one with. Friends of his mother came in, associates of his father, old friends of Ruth. That gathering of people represented the things in the town that he and his had been allied with. He watched them, thinking of his own going away, of how it would be an entirely new group of people he would come to know, would become one with, thinking of the Hollands, how much they had been a part of it all and how completely they were out of it now. As he saw all these people, such pleasant, good-looking people, people he had known as far back as he could remember, in whose homes he had had good times, people his own people had been associated with always. A feeling of really hating to leave the town, of its being hard to go away, crept up in him. He talked along with the friend next him, and watched people taking their seats with a new feeling for them all. Now that he was actually leaving them, he had a feeling of affection for the people with whom he sat in the theatre that night. He had known them always. They were mixed up with such a lot of old things. Some people came into one of the boxes during the first act, and when the lights went up for the intermission, he saw that one of the women was Stuart Williams's wife. He turned immediately to his friends and began a lively conversation about the play, painfully wondering if the fellows he was with had seen her too, if they were wondering whether he had seen her, whether he was thinking about it. His feeling of gentle regret about leaving the town was struck away. He was glad this was his last night. 
always something like this. It was forever coming up, making him feel uncomfortable, different, making him wonder whether people were thinking about it, whether they were wondering whether he was thinking about it. Through the years he had grown used to seeing Mrs. Williams. He had become blunted to it. Sometimes he could see her without really being conscious of it, just because he was used to seeing her. But now that he had just come home, had been with Ruth, there was an acute new shock in seeing her. During the first intermission he never looked back after that first glance, but when the house was darkened again it was not at the stage he looked most. From his place in the dress circle across the house he could look over at her, secured by the dim light could covertly watch her. It was hard to keep his eyes from her. She sat well to the front of the box. He could see every move she made, and every little thing about her wretchedly fascinated him. She sat erect, hands loosely clasped in her lap, seemingly absorbed in the play. Her shoulders seemed very white above her gauzy black dress. In that light, at least, she was beautiful. Her neck was long and slim, and her hair was coiled high on her head. He saw a woman bend forward from the rear of the box and speak to her. It brought her face into the light, and he saw that it was Mrs. Blair, Edith Lawrence, Ruth's old chum. He crumpled the program in his hand until his friend looked at him in inquiry, then he smiled a little and carefully smoothed the program out. But when, in the next intermission, he was asked something about how he thought the play was going to turn out, he was at a loss for a suggestion. He had not known what that act was about. And he scarcely knew what the other acts were about. It was all newly strange to him, newly sad. He had a new sense of it, and a new sense of the pity of it, as he sat there that last night watching the people who had been Ruth's and Stuart's friends. He thought of how they had once been a part of all this, how, if things had gone differently, it was the thing they would still be a part of. There was something about seeing Edith Lawrence there with Mrs. Williams made him so sorry for Ruth that it was hard to keep himself pulled together. And that house, this new sense of things, made him deeply sorry for Stuart Williams. He knew that he missed all this, terribly missed the things this represented. His constant off-hand questionings about things, about the growth of the town, whether so-and-so was making good, who was running this or that, showed how he was missing the things he had turned away from, of which he had once been so promising a part. Here tonight, among the things they had left, something made him more sorry for Ruth and Stuart than he had ever been before. And he kept thinking of the strangeness of things, of how, if there had not been that one thing, so many things would have been different. For their whole family, for the Williams family, yes, for Dean Franklin, too, it would have been all different if Ruth had just fallen in love with someone else. Somehow that seemed disloyalty to Ruth. He told himself she couldn't help it. He guessed she got it the worst. Everything would have been different, easier, for her, certainly, if she, like the other girls of her crowd, had fallen in love with one of the fellows she could have married. Then she would be there with Edith Lawrence tonight. Probably they would be in a box together. It was hard, even when the lights were up, to keep his eyes from that box where Ruth's old friend sat with Mrs. Williams. He would seem to be looking the house over, and then for a minute his eyes would rest there, and it would be an effort to let go. Once he found Mrs. Williams looking his way. He thought she saw him, and was furious at himself for the quick reddening. He could not tell whether she was looking at him or not. She had that cool, composed manner she always had. Always when he met her so directly that they had to speak, she would seem quite unperturbed, as if he stirred in her no more feeling than any other slight acquaintance would stir. She was perfectly poised. It would not seem that he, 
what he must suggest, had any power to disturb her. Looking across at her in the house darkened for the last act, covertly watching her as she sat there in perfect command of herself, apparently quite without disturbing feeling, he had a rough desire to know what she actually did feel. A light from the stage surprised her face, and he saw that it showed it more tired than serene. She looked bored, and she did not look content. Seeing her in that disclosing little shaft of light, she had drawn back from it, the thought broke into the boy's mind, what's she getting out of it? He had never really considered it purely in the light of what it must be to her. He thought of her as a hard, revengeful woman, who, because hurt herself, was going to harm to the full measure of her power. He despised the pride, the poise in which she cloaked what he thought of as her hard, mean spirit. He thought people a pretty poor sort for admiring that pride. But now, as he saw her face when she was not expecting it to be clearly seen, he wondered just what she was actually like, just what she really felt. It would seem that revenge must be appeased by now, or at least that one form of taking it, not getting a divorce, must have lost its satisfaction. It would not seem a very satisfying thing to fill one's life with. And what else was there? What was she getting out of it? The question gave him a new interest in her. Caught in the crowd leaving the theatre he watched her again for a moment, standing among the people who were waiting for motors and carriages. The thin black scarf around her head blew back, and Edith Lawrence adjusted it for her. Her car came up and one of the men helped her into it. There was a dispute. It seemed someone was meaning to go with her and she was protesting that it was not necessary. Then they were saying goodnight to her and she was going away alone. He watched the car for a moment as it was halted by a carriage, then skirted it and sharply turned the corner. He had intended to take one of his friends home with him, had thought it would be too dismal alone there in the bare place that last night. But now he did not want anyone with him, did not want to have to talk. Though when he let himself in the front door he wished he was not alone. It was pretty dismal to be coming into the abandoned house. He had a flashing sense of how absolutely empty the place was, empty of the people who had lived there, empty even of those people's things. There was no one to call out to him. His step made a loud noise on the bare stairs. He went back downstairs for a drink of water. He walked through the living room, the dining room, the kitchen. There used to be people there, things doing. Not any more. A bare house now, so empty that it was queer. He hurried back upstairs. At the head of the stairs he stood still and listened to the stillness from the bedrooms. Then he shook himself angrily, stamped on to his own room, loudly banged the door behind him and whistled as he hurriedly got ready for bed. He tried to go right to sleep, but he could not get sleepy. He was thinking of the house, of things that had gone on there. He thought of Ruth and Stuart, of the difference they had made in that house. And he kept thinking of Mrs. Williams, thinking in this new way of the difference it must have meant to her, must have made in her house. He wondered about the house she had just gone home to, wondered if she got lonely, wondered about the feeling there might be beneath that manner of not seeming to mind. He wondered just what it was made her keep from getting a divorce. And suddenly the strangest thought shot into his mind. Had anyone ever asked her to get a divorce? Then he laughed. He had to make himself laugh at the preposterousness of his idea. The laugh made such a strange sound in the bare room that he lay there very still for a moment. Then loudly he cleared his throat, as if to show that he was not afraid of making another noise. But the house was so strangely still, empty in such a queer way, it was too strange to let him go to sleep, 
and he lay there thinking of things in a queer way. That preposterous idea kept coming back. Maybe nobody ever had asked her to get the divorce. Maybe it had just been taken for granted that she would be hard, would make it as hard as she could. He tried to keep away from that thought. Something made him want to keep away from it. But he could not banish that notion that there were people who would be as decent as it was assumed they would be. He had noticed that with the fellows. Finally he got a little sleepy, and he had a childish wish that he were not alone, that it could all be again as it had been long ago when they were all there together, before Ruth went away. He slept heavily toward morning, and was at last awakened by the persistent ringing of the doorbell. It was a special delivery letter from Ruth. She said she hoped it would catch him before he started west. She wanted him to stop in Denver and see if he could get one of those Jap men of all work. She said, Maggie Gordon's mother has heard and came and took her home. I turn to the Japanese, or Chinese if it's a Chinaman you can get to come, as perhaps having less fear of moral contamination. Do the best you can, Ted. I need someone badly. He was to leave at five o'clock that afternoon. The people whom he saw thought he was feeling broken up about leaving. He had to hold back all feeling, they thought. It was that made his face so set and queer, and his manner so abrupt and grim. He had lunch with Harriet. She too thought the breaking up, the going away, had been almost too much for him. She hated to have him go, and yet, for his sake, she would be glad to have it over. At two o'clock he had finished the things he had to do. He had promised to look in on a few of his friends and say goodbye. But when he waited on the corner for the car that would take him downtown, he knew in his heart that he was not going to take that car. He knew, though up to the very last he tried not to know, that he was going to walk along that street a block and a half farther and turn in at the house Stuart Williams had built. He knew he was not going to leave Freeport without doing that. And when he stood there and let the car go by, he faced what he had in his heart known he was going to do ever since reading Ruth's letter, turned and started towards Mrs. Williams, walking very fast, as if to get there before he could turn back. He fairly ran up the steps and pushed the bell in great haste, having to get it pushed before he could refuse to push it. End of chapter 28